Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. And what we're up to today is Genesis chapters 20 to 23. But before we dive in there, we're just going to do a little bit of background again. So Genesis is a book that tells a story of beginnings. It's talking about the formation of the world, the formation of humanity, and then the formation of God's people. It tells us about God's gift of free will to humanity and what it means to have the image of God on us. And as part of that, we all have this ability to choose. And unfortunately, as we've seen in the first 15 chapters of Genesis, we don't always choose well. It says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So if we can choose life, we can also choose death. And in 15 chapters of Genesis, we've seen that we often choose death. And you could say that the portion of Genesis up to the life of Abraham is almost like the prologue or the introduction. And that from creation, as humanity develops, so does its propensity for sin and death and evil. We've seen the fall, we've seen the first murder with Cain and Abel, we've seen the flood, we've seen the Tower of Babel, and last week we unpacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's in this world that seems bent on death and sin and evil that God charges this one family with the task of leading a holy life from which others will learn. And this becomes the foundation of the Israelites as a nation. They will become a nation of people who are called to be set apart and it all begins with Abraham. We can actually parallel Abraham's life and Abraham's calling to our own Christian walk. You know, we live in a culture that's increasingly bent on destruction. And we as Christians are called to lead a life that is set apart from those around us, just like Abraham was. So let's have a little recap on the lives of Abraham and Sarah to this point. Hello. Um, Abraham, you could call the founding father of the Israelites as a nation. And it's against this backdrop of sin and evil that God calls Abraham to leave his homeland to leave his people, to leave his father's house, and to start a new life that is totally set apart from his culture, a life that's marked by total obedience to God. And what we've seen in the preceding chapters is that God creates a covenant with Abraham. They call it the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant covers three main themes. Can you guys see that? Um, The first promise in the covenant of Abraham is children. So God promises Abraham repeatedly that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Now, this is a little problematic when Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are both elderly. And before they were elderly, they were barren. Abraham waits over 20 years to see this promise of children realized. And in in that time of waiting, he tries to come up with solutions in his own ability and in his own understanding. So enter Hagar, who is Sarah's slave. It's Sarah's idea, but Abraham has a child with Hagar, and their son is called Ishmael. But again, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham and reiterates that it's actually with his wife, Sarah, who they're going to see the, through whom they're going to see the promised heir. Now, even though she's postmenopausal and even before that she was barren, God promises, no, it's with your wife, Sarah, that you are going to see this promise realized. And he promises that multiple times. The second promise as part of the Abrahamic covenant is that Abraham will have a land for his people. And the third promise is that all the people on earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. Up until this point, Abraham has had just three documented revelations of God. The first was in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham to leave his father's homeland, and he makes this promise of blessing to Abraham. We then saw in Genesis 15 that God takes that promise further and makes it a covenant. So God essentially says, may a curse be upon me 
if I fail to make good on my promise to you. And two weeks ago, we unpacked Genesis 17, which is 23 years after God initially called Abraham. He comes to him again and he reaffirms that covenant and he really reiterates that it's through his elderly, barren wife, Sarah, that the promise is going to be realized. Abraham has been waiting and waiting and waiting without seeing any fruit of this promise for two decades. So this is the backdrop on which we build today. So we are unpacking Genesis 20 to 23. Now there's a few key events here that we're just going to skim through briefly, not necessarily in chronological order, and then we'll unpack them in a little more detail. So the first event is an unusual encounter between Abraham and this local king called Abimelech. So Abraham, for the second time in the recorded biblical history, tries to pass his wife off as his sister to save his own skin. Yuck. Um, The next thing we see is the Treaty of Beersheba. Now, any history buffs in the room? So it's the Beersheba that 4,000 years later will make an appearance in World War I where the Australian light horse got renowned. Um, You know, I love that this part of the world has 4,000 years worth of history recorded. Isn't that amazing? The next thing that happens is Isaac is born and we finally, finally see the realization of the promise of God. Hagar, remember Sarah's slave who had the son Ishmael, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away and God promises to bless Ishmael and turn him into a great nation. Next thing that happens is Abraham is tested and it all seems like it's gone horribly wrong and the last thing that happens is Sarah dies. Now, as we dive in, as we read the accounts of Sarah and Abraham, I really want us to all keep the bigger picture in mind, that Abraham's life is representing a break with all that has come before. That in calling Abraham and Sarah, God is setting up this one family who will live a life that is set apart from culture, set apart from worldliness, and set apart from all that has preceded them, and live a life in total devotion and obedience to him. This family is called to become a nation of people who will be called the people of God, a nation who are likewise set apart from their world, set apart from the customs of their culture and who will live by faith, not by sight. And it all begins with Abraham and it will be all built on the example that he sets. So it's really important that these foundations are laid down right. Abraham's call and the call of the Israelites as a nation, it's not just an interesting biblical history lesson. As we read through it, it's so relevant to our own walk as Christians. We are likewise called to live a life that is set apart, live a life that is set apart by devotion to God. How much can we learn from the example of these people who lived 4,000 years ago? So let's dive in with that background. The first encounter is between Abraham and this king called Abimelech. You would think that Abraham would have learned from his previous mistakes. He already did this in Egypt and was reprimanded for it. But for the second time, a ruler of a land desires Sarah and Abraham in a moment of brain fart, call it what you like. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? Um, Abraham pretends that Sarah is his sister to protect himself. So Abraham and Sarah are living this sort of Bedouin nomadic lifestyle. You could call them the original grey nomads. They're travelling from region to region and at this point in history they've set up camp in a place called Gerar where Abimelech is the king. Now Sarah must have been a great beauty because she is an old woman at this stage. But Abimelech desires Sarah and takes her into his harem. And Abraham allows it to happen and pretends that she is his sister in order to protect himself. He already did that in Egypt and got into hot water over it and he does it again. What is he thinking? Fortunately, Abimelech sees God in a dream and he never actually touches Sarah. Abimelech realizes that Abraham is a prophet. Abraham, on the other hand, tries to cover up his deception by telling a bunch of half-truths to try and get out of it. 
But you would have to say Abimelech is quite honourable in this encounter. He returns Sarah to Abraham and he recognises that God's mark is upon Abraham. And what we see is that Abraham makes a lot of mistakes and he often repeats a lot of mistakes in his journey before he finally reaches a point of obedience to God. And I, for one, am so incredibly grateful that God is so gracious with Abraham that he, does, he doesn't just give him a second chance, he gives him a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. We see him repeat the same mistakes over and over again, but keep getting second chances. Now, for those that don't know me, I'm a specialist doctor and I did my training in Melbourne. And during my training, I used to have to go to these meetings once a week where you would sit in a room of about 100 people. As the trainee, you would sit in the front row and the professor would put pictures of people's retinas on the screen. And one by one, you would take turns and have to, in front of the entire room, talk through what the issue was, what the diagnosis was and what your treatment was. You can guarantee that if you got that wrong, if you got the diagnosis wrong the following week, you'd get the exact same problem. If you got it wrong that week, you could guarantee that the following week you'd get it again. And this professor, which seemed harsh at the time, but in retrospect, I'm very thankful, this professor would keep giving you the same problem until you got it right. You could say that Abraham's life to this point is somewhat like that. He keeps having these opportunities to prove faithful. And while he sometimes gets it wrong, he often makes some pretty monumental mistakes. But God doesn't give up on him. He keeps giving him another chance to grow and to learn and to get it right. Later, Abraham makes this treaty with Abimelech, and they call it the Treaty of Beersheba. Abimelech, the king, says about Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. And what we can see is that even though Abraham gets it wrong and makes mistakes, local kings in the area can see God's mark upon Abraham. And we have a glimpse of what God had planned and called Abraham to, that just as Abraham looks different physically following the covenant of circumcision, his character and his heart is different and people around him can see that. We now come to the birth of Isaac. Finally, we have read nine chapters of Genesis covering Abraham's life to get to this point. And poor Abraham has waited 25 years and finally his promised son arrives. Now the dates differ depending on what you read, but it's approximately 2066 BC. Abraham is 100 years old. The name Isaac means he laughs. This is actually a throwback to the fact that both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the prospect that they could have a son of their own. Now we could think our story ends here. We can all pack up, go home, happy ending, see you later. But wait, there's more. The next thing that happens is Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. So Hagar is Sarah's slave. Abraham and Hagar have a son called Ishmael. Isaac is probably three or four years old and Ishmael's a teenager at the time that Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. And in fact, according to the Mesopotamian law of the time, by waiving her right to an inheritance for her son, Hagar the slave gains her freedom and God still looks after them. So for the second time, Hagar gets lost in the wilderness. And for the second time, God appears to Hagar God actually promises Abraham in, in Genesis 21 that I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. And it says that God was with the boy as he grew up. The name Ishmael means that God hears. Ishmael goes on to have 12 sons who will become 12 princes or tribal rulers. It's a little parallel, you could say, to the offspring of Isaac, whose son Jacob goes on to have 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of Ishmael will settle in the area east of Egypt. We'll probably know it as approximately Saudi Arabia by now. It's actually the area that the uh, Israelites wandered in after they left Egypt in the book of Exodus. And the tribes of Ishmael are said to have lived in constant hostility and war with each other, just as God predicted they would. By contrast, the tribes of Israel had their disputes. They didn't always get on, but they did actually manage to live in relative unity as a single nation under God. 
You could say that the descendants of Ishmael form a parallel to the descendants of Isaac, only living in hostility rather than unity. So it just shows that when we take God's plan and we try to twist it and bend it to our own understanding, it just misses the mark and it becomes this poor, cheapened version of what God had planned for us. Now, anyone need a breather? We would normally be sort of closing off our 15 minutes right about now. Order your coffees if you haven't done so, because we're going to dive into one of the heavier parts of this passage of Scripture now. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to reflect and ask a question. What do we do if we come across a passage of Scripture that seems cruel or unfair? I would say first thing we do is we acknowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways. And we acknowledge that we don't always have all the knowledge, information or understanding. The second thing we do is we acknowledge what we do know about God. We look to Jesus and what he did for us. We acknowledge that God is love, that God is merciful, that God is just and God is gracious. It says in Exodus 34 verse 6, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And the third thing we do is we acknowledge that while we don't necessarily understand the why or the how, we have a personal relationship with the who. So the next portion of our scripture today, Genesis 22 verse 2, God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. I feel like we need to read that again just to get the gravity of that instruction. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there on a, as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Abraham obeys God immediately. Early the next morning, he packs up Isaac, who's probably an adolescent at this point. He takes two servants and a donkey, and he travels for three days to get to this region called Moriah. He leaves the servants a short way behind and tells them that he and Isaac are going up the mountain to worship God and says, we will come back. He builds an altar. He arranges the wood. He binds his son, Isaac, the son that he's waited 25 years for, the only heir to his covenant with God. He lays his bound son on the altar. He pulls out a knife and he lifts the knife. And then at the last possible moment, God calls out to Abraham from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. That's a pretty harrowing tale. What happens next is we heard Andrew shared with us, God provides a substitute. It just so happens that there's a ram caught in a thicket right by the altar provided by God as a substitute to the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham names this area Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And that name actually goes on to be used in the temple in the days of substitutionary sacrifice. When you read this account, it feels cruel. How could a loving God ask such a thing of one of his children? Sarah and Abraham finally have their son, and it seems like we've finally got our happy ending. They've waited for years and years, for decades for this. And God has also made it clear that Isaac is the heir through which the promise will be fulfilled. Now God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. What on earth is going on here? And the trust and obedience that Abraham shows here is profound. It's actually jeopardizing the very promise of his covenant with God. And remember, God has vowed to curse himself should he not keep his promise to Abraham. So when you read this account, it feels cruel. Until you remember that there is actually a father who did sacrifice his son. 
Now, I don't believe that God ever intended for Abraham to harm Isaac, but that the more important lesson here was for Abraham to learn to put God above all the things that he held dear and not make idols of them. In fact, a few books later in Deuteronomy, when Moses is giving a detailed law of God to the Israelites, in chapter 18, Moses says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter. So sacrifice of children is detestable to God. So God clearly never meant Abraham to go through with sacrificing Isaac. So why did he ask it? Now, when you think of what was going on in this confusing passage, it's good to remember that bigger picture that we talked about before. What's God doing through Abraham? Abraham is called to set up a family and then a nation of people who will be called God's people. A people who will live by faith in total obedience to God. A people who will throw off the ways of the world and live in obedience and love of their God, thereby setting an example to the world. Now, I don't think God ever intended Isaac to come to harm, but rather he wanted Abraham to come to this place where nothing was more important to him than serving God, not even the good gift that God had given him. Now, I also don't think that Abraham believed that he was going to permanently lose his son either for several reasons. So when Abraham leaves the servants and goes up the mountain with Isaac, he most specifically says that we will come back down to you. Hebrews 11 gives us another insight. It says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You know, God's call to Abraham essentially is asking the question, do you trust me enough to obey me unquestioningly? Abraham had fallen short multiple times in this regard. And the testing with Isaac is the ultimate hurdle in this principle. Do you trust me enough to not try and fix it yourself? Up until this point, you would have to say that Abraham didn't. And it's in this final testing that we finally see Abraham trust God unquestioningly. And it's the provision of the ram that then points to Jesus. Jesus, who will become the sacrificial lamb provided for all of us. So remember that God is outside of time. God knew exactly what he was doing 4,000 years ago. He knew that 2,000 years after this event, his own son would lay down his life as a sacrifice for all of us. And it's in this moment with Abraham and Isaac that God's pointing to the future coming of Jesus. Following this final test, God once again reiterates his covenant with Abraham and he says, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations of earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. It's like after all this time, after all his failures, Abraham finally gets it. He's finally graduated from the school of obedience and faith and he finally trusts God unquestioningly. Abraham's immediate response in this challenge is actually completely out of tune and completely out of character with how he's behaved in the past. In the past, when Abraham's faced challenges, he's tried to shift responsibility He's tried to sort it out for himself. He's sinned in order to protect his own skin. Yet now, with the hardest challenge of all, he immediately acts with complete obedience. It's like he's finally there in his faith journey. And he's actually holding up the knife before God stops him. Now, there's a really important point of significance that I want to discuss here, and that's the location of this event. The location of this event being on Mount Moriah. It was a three-day journey from where Abraham was residing in Beersheba to Mount Moriah. So the location is clearly significant. What do we know about Mount Moriah? Well, it's eventually going to be the location where Jerusalem, the city, will be built. 
It's also the same site where God showed mercy another time and turned back a raised knife another time during King David's reign. Now, this story is told in both 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24. God has sent a plague on the Israelites, and we're not exactly sure what their sin was, but we know that they have sinned. And the angel of death's sword is said to have been raised, ready to destroy Jerusalem before God shows mercy, just as Abraham's knife had been raised before God told him to stop. And the the exact site where God turned back, or God said, stop, is named the threshing floor of this guy called Arona the Jebusite. Arona the Jebusite, say that 10 times fast. Um, And that is on Mount Moriah. David then builds an altar here on Mount Moriah and makes a sacrifice to God. He then purchases the land, and that becomes the land where the future temple will be built by his son Solomon. Arona the Jebusite, who owned the land, wants to give the land to David, but David insists on paying for it because he says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Mount Moriah is also where we find Calvary, the site of Jesus' death on the cross. So Mount Moriah is a place of significance where God demonstrates substitutionary death, and it all points to Jesus who will be the ultimate sacrifice. So on surface reading... What in Genesis seems like a cruel, unkind account is actually demonstrating God's mercy and grace. Mount Moriah is going to become synonymous with God's mercy and God's grace. It's a place where one day a father will sacrifice his son out of love. It's a place that symbolizes a God who loves mankind so much that he would make the ultimate sacrifice so that they didn't have to. You know, on face value, reading the Old Testament can sometimes seem like a bunch of disconnected stories, but I love that when you dive in deeper, you see the coming of Jesus sprawled all over the pages. God knew exactly what he was doing 2,000 years before Jesus' birth, and he knew how he was going to bring about salvation, and it all points to Jesus. From our 21st century vantage point, we can sometimes struggle to understand certain portions of the Old Testament, but it was certainly planned. You know, God was asking Abraham the same question that he asks each and every one of us. Is the gift more important to you than the giver? After 25 years of learning total obedience and trusting God's way over human understanding, was there anything that Abraham was still holding more dearly than God? And it's this final test of obedience that proves that Abraham's faith is refined like gold or silver. You know, if we put anything before God in our lives, it becomes a God or an idol to us. And even the good gifts from God can become gods or idols if we give them the wrong rank in our lives. How many things do we hold on to so tightly that we inadvertently make idols of them? An idol is simply something that you put before God in your life. They can be good things in and of themselves. They can be gifts from God, but they become idols if they take the wrong place in our life. We can make idols out of our career, out of our children, out of our spouse, out of our finances. You know, Do we trust God with our children? Do we trust that God cares for our children's well-being more than we do ourselves? Do we hold on to our finances with a tight fist because we don't trust the God who gave them to us in the first place? Mount Moriah is an important place that demonstrates sacrifice and it undeniably points to the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. This occurred on Mount Moriah in the exact same location. Now, we are no longer called to offer animal sacrifices to God, and I'm very grateful for that. But we are called to make a response and a sacrifice of our own, a living sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So our response to the sacrifice of God is to offer our living sacrifice in return. Sacrifice should cost something. 
Like David, we should say, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. We should sacrifice our best to God. And our sacrifice, of God is this, our sacrifice to God is this. It's a life lived in praise and worship of him. As it says in Hebrews 13, verse 15, let us continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So Abraham's calling right from the beginning from his father's homeland in Ur through to Mount Moriah near the end of his life shows a transition in his character and a transition in his faith. God has made some very big promises to Abraham. Abraham has, Abraham's faith has wavered along the way and he keeps trying to sort it out himself. He does it in Egypt. He does it with Abimelech. He does it with Hagar and we see Ishmael as the result. But God continues to be gracious with Abraham. He comes to him repeatedly and reiterates his promise and he cares for Ishmael. And it all culminates in this final test of trust. It seems extreme, but we've got to remember what's happening here, that God is using Abraham to set up a nation of people who are set apart as his people who trust and obey him. So the foundations here are really critical. The final event that happens in this portion of scripture is the death of Sarah. And Abraham weeps and mourns for her. She's given a burial of honour in a cave. And actually, he's offered the cave that she's buried in for free, but he insists on paying full price for it in honour of his wife. I'm just about to wrap up, but I just want to end with a few final thoughts. God wasn't confused when he tested Abraham. The Bible is not made up of two different gods, a cruel, vindictive, judgmental Old Testament God and a loving, kind New Testament God. It is all the one God the whole way through, a God who is good, a God who is love, a God who wants to know his children and be known by them in return. Now, there is a lot of things that happen in the Old Testament that are shaped by the culture of the time. And our 21st century brains can sometimes struggle to come to terms and understand some of these events and customs. There's also a lot that happens that we will never understand simply because God's thoughts and ways are so much higher than our thoughts and ways that how could we ever fathom to understand them? But what we do know is this. Firstly, God called Abraham to live a life of total devotion and obedience to him. And he calls each and every one of us to do the same. Second, God's plans for us are good plans. It says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And the final thing is that God's intent towards us is love. And we need no greater proof of this than in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Our father's love for us is so great that he would take on the ultimate pain and he would take on the ultimate sacrifice of a father laying down his son so that we didn't have to. Thank you. Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.